Good morning. For those of you watching New City Live or at the Matthews campus, I'm really grateful today that we can uh, come together as a full church as we continue our series, our journey through the book of Ephesians. And so if you have a copy of the scriptures, I want to encourage you to open them up or turn them on to Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at the first seven verses in Ephesians chapter 2. And as you're turning there, let me just give a little bit of family news since we're all together as a church today. Uh, we're going to be having two really special events this week that are all church events. The first is tonight at our South Park location. We're going to be having Parent Talk. Once a quarter, we bring all the student ministries together for an event called Parent Talk. We have a, a counselor from the Barnabas Center here locally that's going to be coming and sharing with parents about mental wellness and health with our students and just having a time for parents to gather together and encourage each other in this thing called parenting because it's not easy, is it? And so uh, as a church together, we want to gather tonight on our South Park uh, campus from 5 to 7 p.m. And while our parents are with the counselor and talking together about parenting, our students are going to be participating in a serve event in our gym here at the South Park location. So Samaritan's Feet is uh, joining us for this serve event. They'll be sorting shoes that'll be shipped out all over the world. And so I want to invite you tonight for Parent Talk, 5 to 7 p.m. at our South Park location. That's for all students and families. And then the second event this week for all of our church is Renewal Night. Renewal night is a night that we come together once a quarter for a, uh, a, an extended time of worship and prayer, communion together as a, as a whole church family. And uh, this quarter, it's going to be at the Matthews location. So Thursday night, 6.30 to 8 p.m., uh, want you to come, your whole family, for renewal night. It's going to be a great night of worship, communion, uh, time together. And our focus this quarter is healing. So we're going to be asking God for healing both spiritually and emotionally and even physically and spending time together worshiping and, and praying towards that. So as you make your way to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, I want to ask you a question as we start together today. Do you want the good news or do you want the bad news? How many of you would say, wherever you might be, just raise your hand unless you're driving, don't raise your hand. Uh, how many of you would say, I like to get the good news first? Some good news people. A lot of glass half empty people in here too. How many of you would say, I want to get the bad news first? That's me. Yeah, I want to hear the bad news because then I'm going to tell you if the good news is good after I hear the bad news, right? When we get to Ephesians 2, uh, particularly the first uh, seven verses in, in Ephesians 2, this is a really important question. And it kind of sets the, the context for what we're going to teach through today. Let me, let me try to illustrate it a, a, a different way. If there were three patients who were walking into a doctor's office, they had uh, gotten scans and x-rays, they knew something was going on, and they, they all went for a follow-up appointment to, to the doctor. And the doctor asked them the question, do you want the good news or do you want the bad news? And before the patients could answer, he said, you know, here's the deal. I've got good news for you, but you're not going to know how good the good news is until I, I tell you how bad the bad news is. And here's the bad news, guys, for those patients. You, you've got a heart condition that you were born with. And moreover, you've been chain smoking for 30 years. And unless you get this surgery, the good news, it can, be, it can be fixed. Unless you get the surgery, you're going to be dead in a year. But if you get the surgery, you'll be alive. The first patient of those three, just again, an illustration to set the context for Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. The first patient's response to this, to the doctor saying, hey, here's the bad news and here's the good news, is to say, this is outrageous. 
How dare you tell me that something is wrong with my heart? I know my heart better than you know my heart. And I know nothing is wrong with my heart. Moreover, you're the worst doctor in this city. I'm going to find a better doctor. I came here to be encouraged today to hear good news. And I walk in and you tell me that I've got a heart condition that unless I get a fix or a surgery, I'm going to be dead in a year. How dare you? And they stormed out of the office. The second patient similarly responded by saying, hey, I know my own heart. I know how I feel. And even though you're showing me the x-rays and the scans and you're saying that if I don't get this surgery, I'll be dead within a year, I know how I feel. And here's the deal. I know other people who smoke. I know other heart patients. And I don't smoke as much as them. And I know my heart is better than these people. You should be focusing on them because they're worse off than I am. And they stormed out of the office. And then the third patient. They hear the bad news. They hear the good news and they sit quietly and they contemplate it and they say, doctor, thank you for caring enough about me to tell me the truth. Thank you for telling me the bad news. And I'm so excited that there's good news, that there's a way to be cured of this condition. Please tell me more. I'm not sure I could think of a better illustration to set the context for the passage that we're walking through today. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I wonder, you don't need to raise your hand for this, which patient do you identify the most with? One who says, this is outrageous. Two who says, I know how I feel and I'm better than other people. Three who sits and listens to the good and the bad news and receives it. You want to know the truth? I've been all three. I've been all three. And even today I find myself, myself at times saying, I don't want to hear the bad news. I know how I feel. I know my own heart. And here's the thing. I know my heart is better than this other person's heart. And then at times, at times God humbles me. and I'm able to hear the bad news and the good news. What about you? Who do you identify the most with? When Paul opens up chapter two here, he, this is, it's, it's an explosion of the gospel. He's going to, he's going to uh, tell the church at Ephesus what the gospel really is, who Jesus really is, and, and what he's done for us. And it includes both bad news and good news. And what Paul knows here in the order of things is, if I don't tell them the bad news, they'll never know how good the good news is. Let me say it a different way. The bad news, according to Paul here in Ephesians 2, is worse than we thought. It's worse than you thought, guys. But the good news is better than you could have ever imagined. The bad news when it comes to our spiritual condition is worse than you could ever think. But the good news is better than you could ever imagine. And I have, here's the deal, everyone watch this. I've got good news for you, but I gotta tell you the bad news first. Because here's the bottom line with Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 7. The central thought for the whole message today. You won't know how good the good news is until you know how bad the bad news is. So with that, if you're able, would you stand to your feet and let's read our passage today, Ephesians chapter two, verses one through seven. Once you were dead, because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin, 
just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Verse 3, all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when we were raised with Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. Verse 7. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us. As shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Wow the word of God to you today. You may be seated. Paul starts with the bad news, doesn't he? Here's the summary diagnosis if you're following along in the passage. Look at verse one, Ephesians two. The opening words of this explanation of the gospel and what Christ has done for us is this. You were once Okay, on your way, needed a little polishing up, just a little rough around the edges, you were dead. That's what Paul says. No, no subtlety there, right? You, you were dead. Why? Because of your sins and your disobedience towards God. The beginning point of the gospel, dear friends, is the bad news of our condition without Jesus. You'll never be able to sing amazing grace until you know this word, until you know how bad off you were without Christ. Jesus, everyone watch this. Jesus didn't come to make bad people a little better. This is not six steps to a better you. This is you were dead and Jesus came to make you alive. The gospel starts with this summary diagnosis. All of us have a condition of the heart and we've participated in this condition. So our, our sinfulness, our brokenness, our deadness is both a condition. If you're taking notes, you need to write this down. It's both a condition and a choice. I was born with a heart condition a heart that has a propensity to sin and disobey God. And we believe as Christians, just, just our understanding of basic doctrine, again, we're talking about what we believe here, the foundation of what does it mean to be a Christ follower, the foundation of the Christian faith. And it begins with this, that we're broken and separated from God by condition, that Adam and Eve and their choice in the garden has been passed on from generation to generation to generation to generation. And so we're born with a heart that is in rebellion against God. And you say, well, that's not fair. Fairness ended in the garden. And moreover, we've participated in this rebellion against God. So it's not just the condition of our hearts and being born that way, if you will. 
It's that we've participated by our choices in rebellion against God. So I want you to write this down again. By my condition and by my choice, I'm dead in my brokenness and sin. That is the basic understanding and the beginning point of the gospel. There is, let let me just make, make the argument here. There's no reason that Jesus went to the cross to just make you a little bit better. There's no reason for Jesus to shed his blood for you to have a little bit better day today and feel better about yourself or become more self-actualized. Jesus went to the cross to shed his blood and do for you what you could not do for yourself because you were dead by choice and by condition, and it gets worse. That's the start of the bad news, and it gets even worse. You ready? You're like, oh, man, we came to church today for this. It gets even worse. Look at verses two and three. There are three prison guards, if you will, holding you captive to this condition and this choice of sin and death. If you think about it as a prison cell of sin and death and separation from God, there's three prison guards that are, that are guarding you and holding you captive that Paul describes here in verses two and three in Ephesians chapter two. The world, verse two, The devil, the second part of verse 2, and the flesh, verse 3. The world, the devil, and the flesh. And these three are holding all of humanity captive in a prison cell, if you will, of brokenness and sin and death. And Paul describes them here for us in our passage, and we should pay attention to them. He begins by talking about the world. What is the world? What does he mean by that? He means that this world... Society and culture are not operating the way that God intended them to. That God created the world and everything in it. John reminds us of that in his gospel. Nothing has been made in the world without him. Jesus was the creative agent that brought everything into the world. And it was perfect and it was good. And we messed it up by our choice and our condition. And moreover, as time goes on, it gets worse and worse and worse. More broken and more broken and more broken. Time is linear according to the scriptures. It's not circular. Uh, brokenness is not getting better. We're finding that even with new innovations and new, and new things that come into the world that seemingly make our lives better, we find new ways to sin and to be broken. The world, if you're taking notes, here's, here's the definition I wrote down. It's the system of ideas, values, morals, practices that have been corrupted by our rebellion against God. It's, it's twin sins of rebellion, right, and a redefinition of good and evil. Let me say it again. A system of ideas, values, morals, practices corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and a redefinition of good and evil. David Wells said it this way, you can recognize the ways of this world. What is the world? What's Paul describing here in the first part of verse two? You can recognize the ways of the world when sin seems acceptable and good and righteousness seems very strange. And here's the second prison guard, if that wasn't bad enough. The systems, society, practices, that are corrupted by our sinful desires and our rebellion against God, the culture that we live in being against things of righteousness and for things of disobedience, it gets worse. The devil, look at the second part of verse two. Paul names him by name, obeying the devil. And he gives the description, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. And by the way, when we get to chapter six 
in our study of Ephesians. Paul's going to unpack this even further and say that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against spiritual forces of which the commander of the powers of these spiritual forces of evil is Satan, the devil himself. And I'm gonna, I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. Whether you believe in the devil or not, he believes in you. And you better believe he knows so much about you because you are his enemy. And he knows you. He knows your proclivities. He knows so many things about you. This intelligent force of evil coming against God's creation. Here's three things that you need to know about the devil as defined by Paul here in verse two. First of all, he's real. And again, whether you believe that or not, Paul doesn't even give an explanation or say, hey, I know some of you may not believe this or not. He just says the devil and states it as fact. He's real. Number two, his end goal is to spread ruin in our souls and in society. His goal, his chief job description is to still kill and destroy everything in your life. He wants to ruin your relationship with your children. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to close this church and every other church. His chief end is to destroy everything good that comes from the Father. And here's the third thing. His primary tool for doing all of that is lies. Jesus called him the father of lies. Every deception, every half-truth, every full lie comes from the enemy. And so even those of us who are Christians, we need to remember, Paul tells us, he's writing to the church here, people who are Christ followers. We need to remember Paul's instruction here that we have an enemy who comes against us and we must be on guard. And we have to actually, as he gets in chapter six, he says we have to arm ourselves. We have to arm up against the forces of evil in this world, namely the devil and his demons. And it gets even worse. Not only is it a society that is broken and in rebellion against God, not only is there an evil force who's an intelligent force who knows you, who's scheming in all kinds of different ways to devour you and destroy your life and destroy your very soul, there's this thing that Paul describes here in verse 3 as the flesh. The world, the devil, and the flesh. What is the flesh? The actual word in the Greek means my nature. So it's not just my physical being, it's everything about me. My, my very nature by condition and by choice is in rebellion against God. So just for clarity, we don't believe as Christ followers theologically that people are born basically good. We believe that people are born, born by condition and by choice in rebellion against God that they have a condition of the heart that is turned against God. I didn't teach my children to say no, did you? They learned that all on their own. We come in with a condition to say no to God and his ways. And sin, our rebellion against God, listen to this, can be just as much about our inaction as it is about our action. So our flesh, if you're taking notes, is our, is our base disregard It's our desire for self and survival above everything else in the world. It's me. It's hold your arm out right now, and this is my universe. And everything revolves around me and my flesh and my desire for self and survival. And so just just one more minute on the bad news, because you're not going to know how good the good news is until you know how bad the bad news is. And it's bad. 
And Paul says, because of the, 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 the world, the devil, the flesh, these three guards that hold us captive as prisoners of sin and death, we have become ourselves objects of God's wrath, children of, of anger, because we stand in open rebellion by condition and choice to the very one who made us. John Mark Comer uh, wrote a book called Live No Lies. This has been my go-to recommendation the last few months. And he unpacks this three-headed monster of the flesh and the world and the, and the devil uh, that, that Paul unpacks here, the, the, the bad news, if you will. So if you want to go further uh, with your study of this and how we combat these three guards of, uh, that hold us captive to, to sin and in death uh, through the spirit and the work of the church, I want to encourage you to, to grab it and to, and to read it. In fact, he said he, said, uh, he wanted to entitle his book, the, the, the World, the Devil, and the Flesh. And his publisher was like, we'll never sell a book. So we're going to call it Live No Lies. Uh, but the whole book is about combating this, 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 these three guards that hold it as captive to, to the bad news. And he says, you know, just last thing here, he says, this is how all of this works together, these three guards holding us captive. He says, the devil, you know, gives us deceptive lies. He's a liar. He's the father of lies. He gives us half-truths. Listen to this. The the devil uh, deceives us with ideas and lies that are not of God. And it pleads, the devil pleads, those lies plead uh, to our flesh that want to disregard the ways of God and live into those uh, sinful desires and those lies. And then all of that is normalized in society and the culture and the world. So the father of lies lies to our hearts about who we are. It appeals to our flesh that says, yeah, I, I, I am really good. I'm, I'm, I'm not that bad. I'm better than other people. The bad news isn't really that bad. And then all of that is normalized in the society and the culture around us, and they all work together. The bad news, guys, is bad. But here's the deal. You're not going to know how good the good news is until you know how bad the bad news is. Unless we read Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3, we don't know the glorious grace of verses four through 10. And then comes, let's look at verse four. Here comes the good news. Remember the bad news is worse than you thought. The good news is better than you ever could have imagined. Maybe the greatest phrase ever written in the history of mankind is contained right here in the first two words of Ephesians two, verse four. But God. If it just would have been the first three verses, I think you would agree with me. It's a pretty sad story. But grace explodes in these two words, but God. But God, being so rich in mercy, he loved us so much. Even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. That's verses four and five. So here comes the good news. God found you when you were dead. Not okay or just need a little rough around the edges. No. See, atheism, the the belief that God doesn't exist, is you're the only thing. You are God. So eat, drink, and be merry. Just get as much pleasure out of the world as possible because when you die, that's it and it's over with. Religion, moreover, says you're basically good. And you just got to get a little bit better. You need to dress the right way. You need to act the right way. You need to do the right things. And when you do that, you'll just, you'll just, you'll, you'll get 51 to 49 and you'll eke your way into heaven. The gospel is you were dead, 100% dead, 
and now you've been made alive 100%. And it's all the work of Christ. These two words, with Christ, appear four different times in verses 6 and 7. You think Paul's trying to tell us something? It's not you. That's what religion says. Religion is basically moralism. You've got to do a certain amount of things to prove your worth to God, to kind of cross over from good to bad, from bad to good. No, that's not what, what the gospel is. The gospel is you were dead and God made you alive. Here's the deal, guys. This, this, this to me, I mean, we should never get over the gospel. Some of you have been following Jesus for 40, 50, 60 years. We preach the gospel. We remind ourselves of the gospel every single day. We never get over the gospel. C.S. Lewis said the gospel is shallow enough for a baby to play in and deep enough for an elephant to swim in. We never get over it. And we remind ourselves of it every single day. This is what Paul is doing. And here's the deal. Let me say it a different way. The one who knows you the most, who diagnosed you, and all the bad news about you, knows every, hey, even stuff the person on your left and right don't know about you. Because it's worse than they think. It's way worse. God knows every single thing about you. He knows you more than anyone else. And he loves you more than anyone. And I don't know about you, but, but for me, I, I live with this lie, this deception that comes from the enemy. If, peop, if people really knew me, I mean, like if they saw everything about me, they wouldn't love me. And here's the, the, the glorious news of the gospel. The God who knows everything about me loves me more than anyone. God loves me. And he proves it in what he did through Christ. And let me just leave you just by way of the good news. How, how, how do we build this, this, this good news? If we're, if we're kind of constructing the idea of God bringing us from death to life, what do we build this on? Let me just give you four pillars, if you will, of good news that Paul unpacks in verses four through seven here in, in chapter two. Because he starts with the bad and then he gets with the good. And he, he builds the good news of the gospel around these, these four words, these four reasons, if you will, of why God has done what he's done. And here they are. Love, if you're taking notes, mercy, grace, and kindness. Aren't those great words? Love, mercy, grace, and kindness. Look at verse four. But God being so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much. Why did God save you? Because you were good? Because you did something? Paul answers it right here. Because he loves you. He simply loves you. He loves you as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. And then he says, he was rich in what? In mercy. What is mercy? If you're taking notes, what is mercy? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. What did you deserve? Verses one through three. You deserve to stay locked in that prison cell guarded by those three, the world, the devil, and the flesh, separated with, from God forever because of your condition and your choice to rebel against him. That's what we deserve. But God being so rich in mercy didn't give us what we deserve, but it gets even better. Because God lavishes us. He gives us his life when he raised Christ from the dead. And it's only by what? What does Paul say? Verse five, by grace and so that should, that should make us say, well, what is grace? If mercy is not getting what we deserve, then what is grace? Grace is getting what we don't deserve. 
So the, the gospel is this, not only am I saved from separation from God forever, but I'm, I'm made a child of God, a son or daughter, and I rule and I reign with Christ forever. He seated me in the high places with him. I get what I don't deserve. That's what grace is. And it's all wrapped in this final word of kindness. Look at verse 7. I love this. So God can point us for all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and his kindness towards us. It's God's kindness that makes us turn and, and move towards repentance that changes us. And Paul says, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Let, let me say it a different way. Verse 7, as we talk about this idea of kindness. Paul concludes this good news of going from death to life by saying, for all eternity, God's going to point to you. And he's going to show everyone his, his uh, love and his mercy and his grace and his kindness by pointing to your life. He's going to say, see, see, see them? They are a trophy of my love and mercy and grace and kindness. And for all eternity, he's going to point to your life and what he's done in your life, bringing you from death to life to show people who he really is. The, the, the bad news is so much worse than you thought, guys. And the good news is better than you ever could have imagined. That's the gospel. We were dead, but God has made us alive. So let me finish with this question. You want the bad news or do you want the good news? Paul says you can't know the good news until you know the bad news. You can't get verses four through seven until you read verses one through three. Let me say it another way, bottom line today. You won't know how good the good news is until you know how bad the bad news is. You were dead, but you've been made alive through Christ. To him alone be the glory today. If you want to talk about uh, something you've heard today, this understanding of the gospel, bad, good, dead, alive, I want to invite you now wherever you might be at Matthew South Park Online to grab the connect card in front of you or click it online and fill it out. We'd love to uh, continue that conversation with you, pray with you, talk about what it means to follow Jesus and believe and trust in him. And speaking of, you may be asking yourself the question, okay, there's the bad news, there's the good news. I'm really glad for the good news and I know how good the good news is now that I know the bad news. But how does all this work? How does it happen? How do I go from death to life, from, from bad to, to good? Well, I'm glad you asked. And next week, we're going to talk about how all this happens as we study verses 8 through 10 in chapter 2. I hope you'll join us again next week. Can I pray for you? Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness. And thank you in all of those that you were loving to us, you were merciful, gracious, kind when we were dead. You demonstrated your love for us 
that while we were still sinners, while we were still in active rebellion against you, you died for us and you demonstrated all of those for us. Thank you. Would you help us today to be filled with hope because of your work on our behalf and who you are? Would you help us to understand how bad the bad news really is, but how good the good news is because of you, Jesus? Would you give us the courage today and the wisdom to know what you're speaking to us? And as we leave here today, would you give us the faith to go and to live it out? In the name of Jesus, amen. Sun shall pierce the night.
a seat for just another minute. I promise uh, this isn't part two of the sermon. You can buy next week for that. Uh, if you're on our email distribution list, you uh, received an email this week with an introduction of Gabe Smith, who's standing right here beside me. Gabe and his family, Janet, Madeline, who are here today, um, are joining our church, and Gabe is our new executive pastor. And so just wanted to officially welcome them this morning. So would you give them a warm New City welcome? Yeah. Yes. And um, I did just want to take a minute while we're together um, just to introduce Gabe and have him share just a, a minute of his story and a little bit about what in the heck is an executive pastor and what does an executive pastor do? So Gabe, maybe you could just share, a, can you tell your life and, and one minute here for us? Dangerous yeah. question. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we're originally from Charlotte. Uh, Janet and I met and graduated from South Mecklenburg High School back in the day, go Sabres. Um, and Charlotte's, yeah, here's some savers out there. It's awesome. Um, and so Charlotte's kind of been a home base for us through the years, though we've moved around a lot. Um, started off our married life uh, in uh, active duty military service. And um, so that took us all around the country and world. Um, and then kind of at the end of, of our time in the Army, uh, the Lord gave us our beautiful daughter, Madeline, who's now 15. Um, and then we got a call to ministry. And actually came back to Charlotte, went to Gordon-Conwell, um, got an MDiv, and then did the next most logical thing and moved to South Africa, um, where, we, uh, where we were for six years and ran a discipleship ministry, had a beautiful uh, life and experience there, and then came back in 2017, moved to Greenville, South Carolina, uh, and that's where we got reconnected with Chris and New City, and um, I worked as a consultant here for the last two and a half years, really working with the staff and um, helping with the merger and leadership and different things like that. So 
um, even though like coming on Sunday morning is a new thing, I feel very at home here. Um, for the last two and a half years, I've been really helping um, shape uh, part of the community here behind the scenes. So it's an amazing thrill to finally be here um, on a weekend and um, get to be part of the community. And we're just thrilled to be among you and can't wait to get to know you and build um, friendships and relationships. Um, now, what the heck is an executive pastor? Um, good question. Um, it's a very general role, but um, a few highlights. Number one, pastor, that, that word is in the title. So I am ordained, I've been ordained for the last 11 years serving in um, different capacities in the local church. And so uh, very much a part of my vocational identity is being a pastor. Um, second, though, is I'm really, it's a role to be a partner to Chris and to be, you know, a, a good number two, a helper um, to do whatever's, you know, whatever he needs really to support him and, and the staff here. Um, the third thing, it's a, it's a planning role. So um, kind of translating the big vision um, into, into strategies and into actual ministries. And so I love that kind of connecting role of getting to sit in the room and hear um, what the big vision is for our church, but then um, being part of like translating that into actual um, a- activity that brings life to people. Um, and then the last thing is people, is that I really am a people developer, um, working mainly with the staff to help grow our leaders in the church. Leader development is a huge thing for me. That's probably, if I had to summarize kind of what is my life mission, it's, it's really helping leaders grow um, so, so that they can do great things in the kingdom. So that's, that's it, and um, can't wait to, uh, to get to know all of you and just be here with you. And I know Janet and Madeline feel the same. Yeah. Well, we're grateful to have you, Gabe. Yeah. Um, so Gabe and I as well, we grew up together. We met in youth group, uh, believe it or not, when we were 10, 11 years old and have journeyed together for quite a while. We joke that we both went to military school. I went to Liberty for my undergrad. Gabe went to West Point and we went different directions, but we've stayed in touch. And that last thing that Gabe said, I just want to foot stomp. Gabe is a developer and discipler of people. Uh, he's had a huge impact on my life, on many people's lives who are, who are even in the room today. And I'm looking forward to each of you intersecting with him um, and also in our ministry for our staff and leaders. Our job, Ephesians 4, is to equip the church for ministry. And so that's what we're beginning to gear all of our ministry around is is equipping and discipleship. And that's what we want to be about in the years to come. And Gabe is a big piece of that. So grateful to have you and Janet and Madeline, you guys be a part of our community and for the journey ahead. So Gabe is going to be up here afterwards, his family. I will be as well. If you want to meet, uh, have prayer, we'd love to do that. And if you're not able to today, uh, when you see Gabe around the Smith family, please, please uh, give them a warm welcome. If you're able, would you stand and allow me to give you a benediction as we go today? Thank you so much for being here. If you're looking to get further connected here at New City, probably the easiest way today is to go to Connection Point, just out these doors. It's inside today. Um, so we'd love for you to, to hear more about getting on a team or getting in a group and making New City your home. We would love to have that happen today. Now may the Lord bless you and may the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious unto you and and lift up his countenance upon you. And may the Lord today and all throughout the week fill you with his grace, his love, his mercy, and his kindness. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Love you, New City.